0: Welcome to Creative Distillation, where we distill entrepreneurship research into actionable insights. My name is Jeff York, Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado in lovely Boulder, Colorado. I am here with my guest host as always.
1: Yeah, I'm Brad Warner, and uh, I work with Jeff at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship. Uh, and I think we have a great show today, actually. Very, very excited. I see this uh, a couple of really cool beers sitting next to me, Jeff, that showed up on my front porch, so I thank you for that. Yeah. Um, what are we going to talk about in beer-wise? What, what, why today and why London Pride and Newcastle?
0: We're doing something a little different today. We are not tasting a Colorado beverage for the first time in the entire history of our podcast, all, God, I don't even know, 10 episodes, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, we're going international. You know, we kind of had international uh, guests last, uh, last podcast. And this time we're going to go English ales. So Brad is really excited because uh, he doesn't have to drink any more pumpkin beer. I I personally am still lamenting the end of Halloween and the pumpkin beer. My wife says pumpkin beer ends at Halloween. I totally disagree. I think it goes well up until Thanksgiving at least.
1: Um, I think it ends when they put it in the bottle. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> no no way don't guys don't waste your time on pumpkin beer go oh, for the there's real some stuff. good ones out there Upslope's oh.
0: pumpkin beer is excellent this year for noses uh has a great pumpkin beer yeah, go to starbucks pick up your latte no 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 so so my supervisor for my phd sarah sarasvathy uh moved to germany at one and her she's done a ton of things and uh, to make money, she would stand outside at one point. Now, she told me a story. I don't know. i have to get her we'll get on here sometime. But she was like, see the woman eat hot peppers. And she would have like a bucket out. Uh, she, she's of Indian descent. And she would stand and eat hot peppers. And the Germans would be so amazed by this. They would like actually give her money. <laughs> so, so, so maybe I could stand outside and just be like, see the man drink pumpkin beer and enjoy it. And like, what do you think? Uh, it reminds me of a story of my father who went to the
1: dentist a couple weeks ago and my dad's an old Navy guy and he had his Navy hat on and he was sitting on a bench outside, um, the store waiting for his wife to get out there. He takes his hat off, rubs his head, his hat is sitting in, in his lap and a guy comes by and drops a buck in his hat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's going to be a great story. family story forever.
1: I'm he's awesome. <laughs> so, not that out there again today. He's, uh, he counts his dollars.
0: Very cool. <laughs> well, so uh, now that we've thought of great busking ideas, and I'm sure inspired entrepreneurs around the world to, to go take up these wonderful ideas we have. Today, our guest is Matthew G. Grimes, who I, I want to call him a professor, but they have these fancier titles over in the UK where he is. He's at the University of Cambridge, uh, which I was lucky enough to visit uh, during my sabbatical a few years ago. If you've never been there, it is amazing. Wonderful town, wonderful university. Uh, thanks for joining us, Matthew. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you both for having me. Looking looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it's it's going to be fun. And uh, so what is your actual title?
2: So uh, at the moment, at the moment it's reader, which is hey, you know. a very strange title. It, it apparently has history in, in the UK. Uh, so a lot of the universities here um, used to abide by this kind of, you know, lecturer, senior lecturer, reader, then, then full professor. So here you're not you're not even allowed to call yourself a professor until you reach that full professor status. But it's been been quite confusing and people have debated in terms of as as the profession is globalized, right? So there's some confusion over, you know, is a reader an associate professor equivalent or is it a full professor equivalent? Or is it just somebody who can read well? Um, you know, so there's there's a, a lot of confusion over what over what exactly it
1: means.
0: And for, for those of you that might be listening and have no idea what the hell we're talking about. So when you're a professor, and this is fascinating to Brad, I'm sure he's just- Oh my God, it. you know
1: what I'm thinking? Is every entrepreneur listening to this looking for tips right now <laughs> is just passing out saying, are you fucking kidding <laughs> me? We, we're, we're, first of all, we have a reader talking to us today. What the hell is that? And, you know, the, the, British, the British titling system um, as we all feel in America, maybe is a little overdone.
0: Um, well, let me explain this in fast. more depth because it's really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, real quick, so when you start off being a professor, you're an assistant professor, and associate professor, then professor. And in the U.S., that just means assistant professors don't have tenure yet. And after that, uh, you become associate professor, and then you want to become a professor for – so you can make 1% more money a year, I guess, and, and you can hold your title or something like that. Anyway, so that's how it works, but it is confusing when you go to the UK and someone introduces themselves, or you know, someone's getting an introduction to This this person is a reader, and you're just like, so yeah. Most of the people in this PhD seminar probably are, uh, you know. Brad, are you a reader?
2: Do you like to read? Uh,
1: I, I do enjoy reading. I uh, mainly uh, fishing books though, and and <laughs> magazines about boating. I'm really really happy there. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: not true. You read all sorts of. Stuff. I read. You know what? Actually, I'm an avid
1: reader. Reader. I, I get up at four in the morning and I start reading uh, probably for
0: four hours before I even start my day. That's awesome. I, I don't do that. I, I, I mean to, and I don't, uh, anyway, so we're really stoked to have Matthew with us here today. Uh, we're going to talk about a paper he wrote a few years ago, actually, um, called the pivot, but first we're going to taste beer. Yes. You know, because that's what we do. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Matthew, you're drinking the the London pride right that's now. That's correct. Right? Yeah. And so London pride is made by Fuller's it's original London ale. Um, so I know that uh, I know that a lot of British beers use obviously British hops, and British hops have a different flavor profile than American hops. And so people are always like, you know, it used to be like, well, we Americans are, you know, making unique interpretations of the world's beers when the microbrewery movement started, and and British beers, pale ales in particular, were a big influence in that. But the basic thing is British hops are really expensive. So American brewers started to grow their own in the Cascade region up in Washington, Oregon, that whole area. Hmm. And American hops tend to have a much more assertive and fruity estuary kind of flavor. Whereas British hops are more floral and have uh, more of a, an herbal flavor to them. So anyway, Fuller's Pride is a great example of that. And British beers are brewed with harder water. The water is generally harder in the UK. All I have
1: to say early. is to me, this beer tastes awesome. I love it. And, and coming from me, that's actually a hell of a compliment. So I went to college for a year in England, the University of London. So it, it makes me feel, the people were so nice when I, through my college years when we were there. And um, then a lot a lot of traveling there with my family afterwards. That uh, Maybe this just takes me home a little bit too. But I, I really, I think that this is a, a fantastic beer.
0: So Matthew, tell us about your experience with British beer as an, an expat, um, yeah, well, and maybe a little background. So you you didn't do your schooling or grow up in the U.K., right? I did my
2: master's work at Oxford. That was my oh. one year abroad, uh, but then returned to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. And after after finishing the Ph.D., moved up to Canada for three years, back to the states where I was a professor at Indiana University, and then moved over to Cambridge uh, just a couple years ago, and we've loved it since. I mean, it's been a strange place to to spend the last year of, of you know, COVID, the COVID situation kind of removed and distanced from the family and from everything going on back back at home. But, you know, it's also been a kind of a magical place to be. Uh, Cambridge in particular is a very rural kind of picturesque kind of pastoral landscape. So, you know, you know, the river floating through the center of the city and a lot of history and innovation kind of intersected this, at this place. And so you know, all the students actually left in March. And so it was basically, I mean, it was a, it was kind of the, the, the city emptied out. So we lost the tourists, yeah. we lost the students. And so it was just really the residents, faculty. I mean, you know, so it, it really became more of a college town that was owned by, by essentially the the faculty at that point. And, and, and a lot, I mean, there's a, there's a number of technology startups here. So, you know, a lot of the wor- workers were still here. AstraZeneca, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people might have heard of, I mean, they're the, one of the entities behind the UK vaccine that's, that's coming out around, around COVID. So anyways, yeah, that's, that's kind of the the short story of how we ended up here and what it's been like since I've been here in terms of British beer. I mean, I try to avoid it as much as possible to tell you the truth, but um,
0: it's going to be a little difficult.
2: Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a number of uh, craft, beers coming out, you know, around here, you know, following the trend of the US. But I mean, I think actually, I, I mean, I, I don't mind this, this beer, the, the London Pride is pretty, it's pretty solid beer. Um, I mean, I would say like in general, they tend to serve it kind of warm, which is a, which yeah. is a strange decision. I, I feel like at least from That's American great. palate, I
0: think. I mean, but there's a reason they do that. So the reason they serve, uh, well, the reason traditionally British ales were served warm is because they didn't have any refrigeration. I mean, they just have, I mean, and American beers too. And so they're naturally carbonated. And the interesting thing about British beers is you can go, when you go to a pub, you get them on the cask. And the cask means that they're not using injected CO2 to push the beer out. It's being instead hand pumped. So if you go in a place, and that's why it'll take a minute for it to settle because the beer gets stirred up and that sells. And to Americans, they go and get that and they're like, oh, great. You just gave me this flat, warm beer. Thanks. Um, yeah. And by the way, there's not much alcohol in either. Um, so for Americans are like, Oh no, but this is the beauty of British Yeah, When it's served warm like that, even a beer, that's like three, three and a half percent alcohol, like basically a Coors Light in alcohol has flavor profiles and a richness to it that many American, you know, American ales tend to be kind of one note. Not not all of them, but I'm, I'm being very beer nerds would get very angry with me, but it's the reason they serve warms tradition and also allows those flavor profiles to come through now it takes some getting used to for sure, but I love it I mean well me I, too i like i love pumpkin beer too, so <laughs> yeah I'm a bit a of a weird guy um so anyway, this is fantastic though I really like uh the malt flavor of it, you know it's got like a almost like a biscuit like a toasted cracker like flavor it's uh, a toasted malt, it's a british style of malting and uh Really nice.
1: You know, in your beer judge days, Jeff, are there any American craft breweries that are, are putting out kind of this English style?
0: It's interesting, Brad. There, are really. I'm sure there are. I mean, there's you know thousands of craft breweries in America sure. now, but I, I don't know of any. Uh, there's one brewery called Firestone Walker in California that kind of has a British branding to it, but you know, it's really. And I remember there was a, a brewery in Virginia that did just ratios. They don't tend to be popular with Americans. You know, maybe we're crazy. still like, uh, you know, against the redcoats. But, uh, yeah, this, one's, this is a good one. And then the other one we got, uh, well, I got to finish this first. I'm trying to talk yeah. and drink as quickly as I can. But, you know, drink this real quick. Mm, that really is good. Uh, the other one we got today, and by the way, when, if you go to the U.K., like, don't drink any of these beers, like, like Matthew's saying. Like, you know, there's, there's so many. Brewdog is one of my favorite British microbreweries. Although they're getting huge now. I think they might have gotten acquired by somebody. But this is uh, Newcastle Brown Ale. And, uh, okay, so I, went, I was an exchange student to Scotland when I was, like, uh, a senior in high school. And uh, my parents are like, yeah, you, this educational, quote, unquote, experience. You came back with a beer gut. And I guess I did, I love and I've kept it ever since. <laughs> um, but this was my favorite beer when I lived in Hoyk in the borders of Scotland. It's not a Scottish beer. It's uh, you know, obviously from Newcastle and Trent. Okay, but it's uh, it the best. most approachable British beer possible. One of the most approachable craft beers, period. Approachable
2: is a good, a good word for it, yeah.
0: Good training, training wheels beer.
1: I, I would say for me, I like the London Pride better than the Newcastle. What do uh, you like do think,
0: better about the London Pride?
1: Uh, just just the way it, the flavor profile to me, it's more. I think it's more of a neutral flavor flavor profile. Yeah, and I, I like that. It's cleaner. Yeah. So I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, they're both good, but I think that the, for me, the London Pride stands out.
0: Just yeah, I'm not for, a big brown ale guy anyway, and probably because you alluded to, I used to be a beer judge, mm-hmm. and like the first time somebody gets a homebrew kit. The first thing they brew is a brown ale. Oh, really? Is it the easiest one to make? It's just what people brew. I don't know. I, I mean, it is easy relatively, but it's really easy to make a crappy one. I can assure you of that because <laughs> because I drank like five hundred of them when I was judging beer contests. Like so, when you're judging a beer contest, um you judge a category. It's okay. so like, hey, Jeff, you're going to judge brown ales, and then you judge all the beers in that category. So if you're doing like uh belgian triples like you know a weirder beer more advanced beer to brew you'll probably judge like three of them right uh brown ale you have like a flight of you know 28 beers like and they're all horrible uh and even the best ones like not that exciting like okay you managed to make a brown ale great um kudos to you because yeah like you said it's not exciting right right so um great beers obviously good stuff but if you go to the uk um just walk into any local and and just ask them what's good and just you'll you'll be fine. You know it is so much fun. I mean,
1: just the the it. selection, how everything's different, and how the communities actually kind of yeah. revolve around the pubs, right? So you can gr- find great food in, in pubs now, and uh, yeah, it's just it's an experience, and it's it's just really fun.
0: I agree. I love it. I I, and I think I love Cambridge more than anywhere else I've ever been in the UK. Yeah, Cambridge is fantastic. Wonderful city. We should do this live. We'll, we'll do. Uh, Post COVID, we'll uh, we'll just come over and do our European tour, Brad. Yeah, we can
1: we can bring some books and be come readers ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> is everything closed now, Matt? Yeah, that's is, what I was just getting ready. Right is, is England is England shut so down? So we
2: so we just went into our second lockdown um, as of right. yesterday. Okay. However, it is it's a fairly uh, precise and slightly moderated version of the lockdown. Um, in some ways, a, a similar version to what I—I I, I think I was reading that the, the White House health advisor is is suggesting at, at this stage, uh, given given the rates that I, I noticed in the U.S. In the last couple mm-hmm. of days, but the um, there's no gatherings that are allowed. Uh, but you know they encourage exercise. The children are in, are still in school, and and if you if you have to work, if you have to get out of the house to work there are certain exceptions that get made, but ultimately they're, you know, they're trying to take the next four weeks and really stave off a massive exponential. And they're also trying to prepare for the holidays so that, you know, as the university students prepare to go back home, that they're not, they're not carrying with them massive rates of of infection back to, back to the, you know, individuals who are most susceptible. So in In general, I think everyone over here has reacted relatively positively i mean there's there's outliers, of course, but I would say you know the fact that children are still in schools and in daycares for the most part and it still feels like people are able to to function um in this kind of virtual world that we're all having to to live in but um,
0: yeah, yeah. It's crazy. from your perspective what's been the impact on on entrepreneurs and small business over there? I mean, has it just been Devastation, or are people pivoting and doing different things, or what's going on?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's been really devastating. I mean, um, in some ways, the UK has been hit harder than 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 most uh, in in Europe. I mean, in the sense that, like, not only in terms of case rates, I mean, we we just had an explosion in London during the during the first wave, but then in addition, um, you know, the economy has suffered in some of the hardest ways in, in Europe, and so. You know they're they're certainly they're putting an effort the government's putting an effort to to try to assist small businesses, but i mean the ends it, it's not it's not in sight i mean you know politicians like to claim that it's right around the corner but it it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's it's anywhere close to being you know to to returning to a sense of normality and so economically, I think that there's a lot of pain right now, and I think increasingly so particularly as we go into the holiday season and retail shopping is just dropping like you know. And so, uh, in terms of entrepreneurs in general i mean if you if you look at the, the sort of the, the high tech startups, of course there's there's a lot more room to to maneuver and pivot. and so that's that's where you're seeing sure. a lot of conversations about innovation, a lot of conversations about resilience mm-hmm. and, and how you how you reorganize your business around you know both in order to help the current moment but also think about. What it means to to build up something resilient into the future and pivoting is definitely a part of the conversation. But I think I think there's also entrepreneurs are also grappling with whether or not they should pivot at, at this moment in time. You know whether yeah. it, it's just kind of following a particular crisis that then if tomorrow things return to normal and all of a sudden I've, I've switched my business model to cater to a particular moment that becomes a real question. And so. There's a there's a bigger question here of, of how do you respond to this how do you respond to crises do you do you respond acutely or do you respond with kind of a long term vision
1: totally totally agree and I think it just depends right I mean which is such a cop out answer but it's true but I do think that if we if we um, jump ahead and have this conversation, get together for another Zoom beer in four years. We're going to see some really massive, interesting companies come out of this crisis um, that okay. probably don't exist right now. And I'm really excited to see where that goes. And it gives entrepreneurs a chance, in a sense, to really shape the future. Right? It doesn't mean we need to go back to normal. What do you want the new normal to look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's going to be true of almost every every industry and yeah. and society in general. I mean, it's just it's it's changed everything. I mean, and so I mean, this is this is totally pertinent and one of the smoothest transitions we've ever had on creative <laughs> distillation into a paper, uh, because you know the paper we were going to talk about uh, Matthew wrote a few years ago is called the Pivot: How Founders Respond to Feedback Through Idea and Identity Work. Well, simpler title than last time, Brad. I mean, like... uh, you know, what?
1: I actually understood this title. So that's a good thing. And I'm a total um, advocate of, of feedback and creating feedback loops and all those types of things. Um, so I'm, I'm going to love today. And I have to actually tell you, any entrepreneur I work with, both um, whether they're big companies or startups, wherever they are, it's all about the customers and getting customer feedback. Understanding the pulse of your customer through the life of your business is is vital. And so I'm going to be really curious to see where you're going to go with this, uh, your findings about feedback and action items for entrepreneurs on the street.
0: This paper was published in Academy Management Journal in, in 2018. We'll have a link on the, on the website for, our, for the podcast. But uh, I remember reading this paper and I, I've always been a fan of, of Matthew's work and, and, and known him for a while. But I was just like, this is so cool because it's actually about something entrepreneurs deal with. I don't mean to be facetious, but that's a little bit of a rarity, unfortunately, as Brad, you've been finding out. Yeah, well, here's the other thing.
1: Is, is some entrepreneurs uh, deal with feedback better than others. Uh, yes. you, know, you have those entrepreneurs that are uncoachable, that they think that they've solved the world's problems, and, and they could have all the feedback in the world that they're heading for a cliff, and they don't care. And by the way, in future news, they're off the fucking cliff in about a year. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, other, you know, and everybody's, the one argument that the pushback that I get is, well, what about Steve Jobs? And Steve yeah. Jobs is the outlier. But, but that's the only uh, case that I can really find that people point back and push back about, you know, Steve didn't listen to anybody's feedback. He, he created a new path for people. But other than that, um, I would say that that's a unique, a unique positioning. We could talk about that. Another
0: you time. could also say, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Page revolutionized uh, electric guitar, <laughs> so I'll do the same. And, and you know, uh, He has feedback. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the idea of like, um, you know, well, Michael Jordan, you know, he played like just by himself and he did really well. I'm like, yeah, that's, yeah,
1: cool. it's a kind of argument. Cause he's
0: Michael know. Jordan. Uh, yeah that's Steve jobs, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, Matthew, uh, tell us a little bit about the well, paper.
2: I, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Steve jobs because I mean, I think this is actually a, a dilemma that, that I was noticed. So, so I, this is, this is based on my dissertation. So I was, I was, basically going through my PhD while I also was uh, launching a company at the same time. And I was interacting in this world of incubators and accelerators and talking with a lot of entrepreneurs. And I was trying to figure out, okay, what what is the angle here? What What's the story? What's interesting? And it was through the process of just talking with my peers that I started to realize that like, there were these two mythologies that, that every entrepreneur was grappling with. And the one, one was kind of represented by the Steve jobs and the Walt Disney's the, the mythology of the sort of the outlier on uh, entrepreneur who has this kind of creative vision and who persists through rejection, right? Like they're just hearing no, no, no 300 times. And it's that it's the 301st time that they, they break through. And in some ways you know, that is disruptive innovation, right? That if, if you really want to be a disruptive entrepreneur, somebody who is going to disrupt existing professions or, you know, disintermediate value chains, you have to be thinking outside the box. And that means that, that investors are going to have a hard time categorizing you, that feedback providers are probably going to reject what your, your ideas. And so a lot of entrepreneurs are like, well, that's, that's why I'm getting rejected. I'm getting rejected because I, my idea is so great that that ultimately, by definition, thinking outside the box is, means that I'm going to get Yeah, up. is Elon Musk one of those fellows? Uh, you know, I mean, I think we could, we could speculate, right? I mean, we, and- Right. But, what do you think, though? Just, just kind of, just as a, an aside. C- certainly, I think that he, what, what was it, about a year and a half ago, he started tweeting about, uh, nuking Mars. It was hashtag nuke Mars, right. right? And, you know, and he got a lot of flack for that. But part of why he was getting a lot of flack is that a lot of people were thinking they were using conventional thought processes to understand what he was trying to say. So they were saying, okay, so what do I know about nuclear, nuclear bombs, right? I know that they devastate right. planets, right? He's now talking about dropping <laughs> a nuclear bomb in order to, in order to create a habitable planet. This That's makes right. no sense, right. but you're, you're drawing on history. You're drawing on probabilities as opposed to thinking, I think, possibilistically and, and, and ultimately thinking counterfactually. Right. And, and, mm. and trying to strip down to what he would call like first principle first principles. Right? Sure. And then, and then working through those assumptions to try to build back out something that is different from, and that, and then, that, Possibly conflicts with you know conventional understandings of how the world works. And in some ways, that, that is precisely what we would encourage entrepreneurs to do. But in doing so, we also have to recognize that those entrepreneurs, to, to the extent that we're' causing, you're asking them to be innovative, are probably going to experience a fair amount of rejection along the way. But there's this other myth that I think is increasingly popular, and it was like it was really starting to come in, into, into its own around the time that i was doing my dissertation which was between you know the years of 2010 and 2012 where the whole lean startup movement and and the idea of fail fast and break things and like go and you know don't care about your ideas right your ideas are really just hypotheses that you're just yep. trying to test and and so you know it's the difference between the entrepreneur as artist and the entrepreneur as scientist right the entrepreneur yeah that's cool is somebody who's just kind of Taking an idea, getting feedback, responding to that feedback, just listening to it, and then you know moving forward. I, so I went to as I was doing this dissertation, I went to this talk, and the title of the talk was something like, "How 17 pivots turned into a 35 million dollar acquisition by AOL." <laughs> you know.
0: It's like, <laughs> just pivot, pivot weekly. Right, right. And <laughs> daily, you know, so just I pivot.
2: think even at around the same time, Steve Blank had come out with an article Steve Blank, the professor at Stanford had, oh, yeah. had, had talked about the the number of pivots, you know, that that's going to lead to the greatest, you know, in terms of exit rate or acquisition, you know, and, and I think that there's this kind of, we're, we're caught up in this idea that that entrepreneurs have to pivot in order to be successful. And so it's how many times do you pivot or when do you pivot or, and and it's clearly true that our first ideas are rarely our best ideas. But at the same time, we also I think have to recognize that to the extent that we've come up with an innovative idea, it's also likely that investors, audiences are initially gonna have a difficult time putting that into a box and properly evaluating it. And so that, that was what I saw every entrepreneur wrestling with as they were going through this kind of accelerator process and incubator process and the, the constant feedback they were getting where, where mentors and experts were coming in and saying like, oh no, your idea is shit or wh- whatever it is. And, and they're taking that very personally and, and, and they're trying to figure out, okay, do I act as a scientist and just iterate on this or do I, do I see myself as the artist and I, I've, I have something really true and worth, and worth pursuing and I just have to keep iterating on it in my garage or whatever it is, right? Like remove sure. myself from the noise of the feedback in order to create something beautiful and then, and then introduce it to the world. And so that was a tension that I saw a lot of entrepreneurs wrestling with and that kind of gave rise to what, what I studied.
1: That's really, really interesting, actually. And maybe there's a hybrid, right? Maybe there's a way to balance both. And I'm not saying that personality types matter, or personality types would actually matter in that in that case. But I think that if you understand and maybe um, are aware of both approaches, and you can, it, first of all, it'll help you deal with negative feedback easier. Also, listening to potential customers, but um staying true to yourself right there maybe there's this balance of this type of rope that you have to walk
2: I, I think that's right i mean that so there's the the epigraph the opening quote in in this paper is uh, from alexis ohanian this was this came out of a podcast with tim ferriss i believe and and he says something to the effect of you know that you know the entrepreneurs that do the best are those that are stubborn and flexible simultaneously and it's like
0: yeah what is that right mean? right yeah, I've, I've got it right in front of me i've got the paper here uh Every founder has to be determined and stubborn, but a great founder, she also realizes that she can be vet stubborn and determined, but also adaptive and flexible. Yeah. So there's this, there's this interesting paradox there because
2: it's like, what what does that even mean? Like, how how are you, how, how are you, (laughs) how are you, you know, stubborn and flexible at the same time? But it is that capacity to, to recognize what is core and recognize what is peripheral that I think every entrepreneur has to really think about. And, and also I think that there's a process of abstracting out to the problem as opposed to thinking really specifically about your solution that I, I've tried to encourage a lot of entrepreneurs that I interact with, you know, because it's, if you can think about owning a problem, then that becomes what you anchor yourself to. It becomes what you, you know, you anchor your sense of self to, and you even anchor your idea to that, that big, big problem or mission. And then where you start iterating is around the various solutions to that problem. And I think that that, that process of abstraction
1: is what I tried to pull out in this paper a lot. I hope that my students are listening, because that's what I, I preach to them. I think that that, that is core, and it, and truthfully, working with lots and lots of entrepreneurs, even beyond the university, um, identifying the problem sometimes is so totally off that they think that the problem they're attacking is actually the problem they're trying to solve, and it doesn't turn out to be the same. And that's actually interesting, too. So problem discovery and validation is a whole art form in itself.
2: It's true, and it's particularly true for, I, I think for students. Who come out of a an educational system that I think orients people toward developing solutions. So you know, I I interact with a lot of engineering students, which I I find to be absolutely just brilliant. Like I I love working with engineering students because you know they're coming in with just such passion and such such knowledge and deep insight into their technologies, and and yet at the same time it's like pulling them back to, from their from the solution that they've that they've attached themselves to, to to that bigger problem becomes precisely the journey that's exciting, I think for them and for me as well.
1: Right, and engineers though, the feedback loop is actually very difficult. Uh, I've found that if you give an engineer, if you pay him $80,000 a year, provide a world-class laboratory and an awesome pizza once a day, you'll never have a product come out of your lab ever. Um, because it's never good enough, right? They always want to tinker and make it better instead of launch the product, get the feedback. Um, and, and that's been a real struggle, I think, um, with engineers, right? The, and they love designing, right? They love it. They live for it and they can always make something better. And it, it cracks me up, but um, if you're working with them, it can be very, very expensive.
0: Well, and this is, this is where I think what I love about Matthew's paper is that it helps us understand, well, well why the hell is that? Is it just because engineers are some different type of person and, and therefore, you know, I mean, I see the same thing. I teach engineers, not engineers. I'm getting ready to launch a class where we try to put engineers and MBAs together. Oh my God. Just getting the two groups. You would think they'd be eager to collaborate. No, no. They don't like talking to each other very much at first. It's like, Mm It's You're trying to speak the same language. Yep. And I, what I love that, that Matthew's paper points out is, is much of this is tied up in, in our identity. Like, not necessarily an identity in the sake of, like, who the world thinks we are, but who we think we are.
1: That's right. And so that self-awareness component then becomes critical as well, right? If you're actually, if you're, if you're open-minded enough to validate and attack a problem and search for solutions, you also need to be open-minded enough about to understand how you're approaching this as a human being. And then uh, align yourself. Hopefully you, you find people that you can work with that kind of fill those personality traits that you get this much better outcome, I think.
0: But that's almost impossible for us to do. Like as humans, we are We're in, I mean, I'd like to hear what Matthew thinks about this, but like our identity is so encompassing and so important. And the thing that makes us, you know, if you follow philosophy, believe we have a self, it's hard to change. I mean, that's the paper talks about that. Well, I
2: mean, so, so the one thing I'll say there is that I do think that context matters a lot here. And, and for, for example, so what I found is that fair enough. the the roles that we assume. So as an entrepreneur, you're stepping into these accelerators and then you're, you're receiving feedback from these investors and or experts. So you, you feel like you, you're in a position of defensiveness. And, Mm. and, but what happens is, as, is what I observed is that these entrepreneurs would then go and talk to their peers. And the ones that did that, the ones that sat down with, with the people who, who they, they did not feel threatened by because the, these are, mm-hmm. this is part of my community. It's part of who I believe yeah. myself to be. Now I can right. collectively make sense of that feedback in a way that is non-threatening and work through it in a, in a more kind of pragmatic way. So this is one of the challenges that, that I think solo entrepreneurs face in particular, right? If you're, if you're an individual founder or if you're finding yourself in kind of an isolated setting, that feedback is, mm. is very challenging to work through as, yeah. because you don't have the peer network to help you sense make around what you're hearing. And then in addition, I, I think this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of engineering. It's like what in the, the, the process of becoming an engineering expert encourages you to do is to specialize deeply.
0: Right, yeah. oh, yeah. get narrower. You have to narrow,
2: narrow, narrow your expertise in a way. That makes, that makes your identity connected to that deep deep form of expertise. Whereas for those individuals who I observed that had managed this kind of broader creative portfolio where they were involved in so many different things across their careers, you know, right. for them, their, their sense of self was not necessarily tied to a specific set of solutions. Or they could more, more easily uh, you know, detach or decouple themselves from a particular idea that they had and, and think more generally about the problem and, and also transcending that kind of uh, dynamic.
1: I would also say that the training for engineers is substantially different than the training for business students or oh, yeah. liberal arts students. And they're used to getting challenged and challenged very tough about designs and their process. And I've actually been in engineering meetings. I'm a co-founder of an optical engineering company um, and I'm not an engineer. And I remember going to like our first meeting, I think in uh, with Samsung in South Korea and my engineers and the Korean engineers started arguing and like yelling at each other. Um, And, but it's kind of like a normal process for them. But business people would never ever, you know, do that. And, and I was like, I just about stood up and started yelling at these guys. And, you know, my engineering team said, just chill out. This is how we do it. And it's like, okay. Um, so it's really, the process is, is fascinating to watch them when they talk about their designs. And especially if you're talking about something novel that had never been done before.
0: This is actually really, a, a really meaningful insight for me right now, actually, because last year I taught a class, uh, we had a local foundation, the Intuitive Foundation, Uh, that sponsored and gave a gift to the school to to found a class that would try to get collaboration between engineers and business students. Not just engineers, non-business students, but, but, you know, really their passion is around engineers. And and so I did that. And the thing about the class, I set up all these world-class mentors we're lucky enough to have here in Boulder. Every session they're getting, I mean, basically set up an accelerator within the school. And I was like, this is awesome. These people are going to love this. It's going to be great. And they did. But the thing that emerged, especially after the pandemic hit, we were online, the students and all the feedback was, I want more time to talk to the other teams. The student teams wanted to talk to each other. And what Matthew's telling me is, I think, critical. And, and what was happening is every week, I mean, and every week I was making them, I mean, I, I set up an accelerator, like they're competing against each other. Some of them had, you know, I'll be generous less developed ideas and uh, experienced a lot of emotional turmoil from being told that week in, week out. And and they didn't take action to, to solve it. They kept doing the same thing over and over. And one thing I noticed actually, and I, th- honestly, this is just coming to me, that group never really engaged with the other groups and providing meaningful feedback or collaborating. Whereas we had other teams that would get very similar feedback, but they would they wouldn't leave the freaking Zoom calls. I mean, it'd be like 10.30 at night. The class was supposed to end at 9.30. And I don't want to be the guy that's like, hey, I got to go, right? I'm supposed to be the professor and be more committed than anybody. But I was like, guys, I'm going to go. I'll leave the Zoom call open. And they're just talking to each other. And I wonder to what extent that's the – I mean, I didn't really get it because I'm like they aren't that helpful to each other really. They, none of them. But I think it was the emotional, emotional side of it of getting comfortable like hey we all just got kind of reamed by this person but it's okay we'll work through it and man that's an awesome insight um, yep. thank you for that I, I hadn't thought about it. I was dealing with it right now as I planned yeah the class.
2: yeah I mean I think that I think that a lot of times we think about our identities as something that we we form on our own or to the extent that if it, if it if it is socially formed it's something that it's formed in in the communities that we have but but we also form our, our identities in opposition to something or somebody yeah. else. And so as entrepreneurs, right. we go in and we're getting feedback from investors. And so there's this kind of hierarchical kind of dynamic that plays out that can be problematic, I think. In, in the same way that, for example, you know, um, I, I I was just reading about how a lot of American politics is formed, not necessarily around partisanship, but actually around like anti party you're, you're, you're so right. opposed to the other
0: side. Not what I'm for. It's right. against Yeah. Them. It's
2: not that you're, it's not that you're deeply connected to the, you know, democratic or Republican party. It's that you just hate the other side so much. Right. And and I think mm-hmm. that, I think that a lot of times that's how we, we form our identities and that can become really problematic because it becomes very divisive. So as entrepreneurs go in and receive feedback and they, they see themselves as sitting across the table from a negotiator, that can undermine the feedback process. And so if you have this kind of diffusion where, you know, amongst the peers, they can collectively come together and, and, be, okay, yep. this, this cool. is, this is pragmatic. We're, we're not, we're not talking about who you are and whether you're, you're a creative person or not. We're not attacking your creativity, right, right. your expertise.
0: Or your idea or your business. Exactly. We're not,
2: we're not, we're not taking your baby and, you know,
1: and, and I would also say that it's important to note that all feedback is not the same. You can you can have people that say that they're investors and provide feedback that may be the dumbest fucking thing you've ever heard. Um, so um, Often. yeah. So entrepreneurs out there just because you get feedback, um, also run it through your filter because there are a lot of people that are pretending to be experts that are certainly not. Um, and I think it's really dangerous for young entrepreneurs when they run into that. Um, yes. I went to a, a curated, um, investor event last year. And you had to talk about uh, the types of investing you did to get invited. And so I go to the bar was my first stop. And then I, there's a, a woman there about maybe seven years old. And, I, and she goes, I, I introduced myself and I said, are you an angel investor? And she goes, yeah. And I said, well, tell me about what you've done. And she said, well, my bridge club puts $5,000 a head in and we go and we invest $25,000 with these young entrepreneurs. And I'm thinking, I don't want feedback from this woman. And I really feel bad. that People are, I mean, her heart's in a great place, right? So it's a really nice thing that she's doing, uh, but she's not, she's not a value added investor. And so got to really, really be careful about where you're getting feedback and then what you do with it and and kind of be able to, like I said, filter that.
0: So I think what we could take from today, try to distill it down. Sure. You know, it's this idea of there's this tension and all entrepreneurs probably experience it. Yeah. You got to be, you got to be focused on your idea and your concept and what you know to be true and what you care about, but you also got to be open to other paths. and And how do you learn to do that, Brad? Like, I mean, you have to be self
1: aware. All right, part of, part of being a good entrepreneur is you really need to understand yourself, and it's it's a really difficult task, and it's first, certainly not the first thing that entrepreneurs want to do. Hey, I've got this great idea. Let me figure myself out. All right, that doesn't yeah. make any sense. But. Right. In a sense, you actually do need to figure yourself out. You need to understand truthfully where your strengths are um, and where your weaknesses are and build that team around you to fill those holes to then collectively be able to filter the feedback I think that we've been referring to.
0: Right, right. And so I'm wondering, like, so I'll get a little academic here since we lost Matthew. I'll I'll try. Okay, I'll keep you on the... the, But just, uh just real quick. So identity theory, the theory he's talking about here has this basic concept that we have multiple identities we hold within the self. And at the very core of what we believe in is something we call personal identity. So values, what I think is important across every situation. doesn't matter if I'm acting in my role as a father or I'm acting in my role as an entrepreneur or I'm acting in my role as a professor. There's certain things that I hold important. And I think maybe that's a way that entrepreneurs can think about this. If you understand those things, it might take a day or longer. I mean, Oftentimes it just takes people, honestly, 30 minutes of reflection, right down. No matter what you're doing, what are the things you hold to? And if you hold on to that, that's not the thing to be flexible about, right? That's the thing to be determined about. But then the other things about like what I do for a living, who are the groups I'm part of, who is my friend set and who's outside of my friend set, especially paying attention to those points where you think about who are the people that are opposed to me. Like, who are the people that are, you know, I, I'm against or, or these, these investors or whomever that I feel like? I think trying to let go of that is really powerful. So maybe, I, I don't know, maybe that's I a would way to be fixed. When you talk about that
1: value component of a person's personality, that goes directly to problem selection.
0: Yes. Like, what are you going what space do you really care about your technology solution or do that's you right. care about the problem you're trying to solve? That's right.
1: And I actually think that that's, that's a really great distinction. And I think that, that, that certainly um, warrants self exploration. Um, I, th- I think it's, I think that's great. I think that that's actually a really good takeaway from today.
0: Cool. Uh, I actually feel better because I make my students do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah and They don't true. like it. They do, no, they don't. No, because do it's not because it's like to stand up and I make them tell everybody else, like, here's, what's really important to me. Here's what I care about. Here's where I come from. Here's how I develop these beliefs. I have them do a, a five minute presentation on themselves. And yeah. that's not something we ask students what, to do. What about formation based on
1: beliefs and not skill sets, right? right. That, that you put people together with common beliefs and then they go out and they fill the holes in whatever skill sets they need. Yeah.
0: This is great. Matthew, yeah. I think Matthew's back. He's back. Hi. Awesome. I'm, I'm back. Great. Well, um, Barrett and I were just, you know, like we said, if, if we lost you, we would just keep talking. Cause that's what we, we keep drinking well, and talking. So but especially uh, after, uh, after, uh, enjoying <laughs> our, our, our London pride and as well as our Newcastle Brown, uh, anything else you want to add or, or talk about with, uh, this paper or the conversation, Matthew, or, or Matthew, actually, I, my
1: question to you would be if so through all of your research, what is one piece of advice that you could give yes. to, uh, young entrepreneurs? So, uh, one piece of
2: advice, um, I, uh, drink pumpkin beer. I,
0: uh, um, so <laughs> that will make you uh, brilliant and well loved at parties. And if you drink pumpkin beer, when you go to a party, nobody takes your beer. It's great. No one will take I, I mean, I think
2: yeah. I, I do think that it's, it's critical to, to understand what is core to the business idea and what is peripheral and work through that process in a way that that allows you to be authentic and responsive. Because I think that that tension between wanting to be true to yourself or true to your, your conception of who you need to be, that kind of process of authenticity is critical. It, it is important for an entrepreneur. But at the same time, you have to be responsive. Your, your stakeholders, your investors need you to be thoughtful about how you are going to take their feedback and act on it. And so that process of authentic responsiveness is ultimately what so much of my research is interested in. And I think it's what, what entrepreneurs really need to hear.
0: Yeah, I, I, I did all that. I think that that that's fabulous. Jeff, don't you think? That's great. I, I actually, it's actually inspiring me. Um, I'm getting ready to teach all my classes and I'm talking to potential students now. And, um, it's making me feel better about the the path I'm going to send them down and what I try to do. But I think I'm even going to dive into it a little more this semester, because um, I think that's a, a really valuable lesson. How do you how do you keep what's at the core but remain flexible towards exactly how you're going to execute on? I think, yeah, man, that's and Brad, holy it. cow! I mean, that's a that's a tough thing to teach. And if you could actually teach someone that, or at least have them, I don't know how you teach someone that other than putting them through a scenario. Uh, a series of choices that force them to think about it. Yeah, um, That's probably way more valuable than anything else we would teach them I, in the class. I, no I, I think it goes day. down to
1: culture of the organization that you start, that you embrace people and you reward people for that type of understanding and, and moving forward that way. And if there was a fr- way to frame it within an organization, I think that's, that's where it needs to start. needs to start at day one. And uh, it, it, it definitely takes an enlightened founder to, to be able to, Put this into practice but i also think that it's going to create great value for people that do
0: great well matthew um, man it is great to Thank see you. you um i look forward to someday doing this in person and getting oh, there yeah. hopefully it won't be too far away yeah next matthew, time we're promise. coming to you <laughs> well <laughs> well one thing i didn't mention uh you know matthew and uh and cambridge as well as the darden school at university of virginia uh and the lead school we all co-host uh entrepreneurship research conference together yep it's coming um, to colorado soon right jeff yeah well I, i'm not sure we, we we had of course uh covid through a whole wrench in the works um <laughs> as we speak but uh but I'm super excited about that i can't we can't wait to host it here in boulder and uh even more i can't wait for you guys to host it in cambridge because that's going to be fantastic yeah. So Matthew, thank you. That
2: was, that was really, really. Yeah. Thanks thanks for having me. I I enjoyed, I enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed the beer.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for hanging out with us on your, on your Friday night. Uh, All right. Well, that's it for creative distillation for this, uh, this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Please uh, reach out to us. Uh, you can reach me at jeffrey.york at colorado.edu or just uh, reach out to Brad or I at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado Boulder. We'd love your feedback. Uh, and if uh, you know, if you feel like it, hit the little subscribe button uh, on wherever you're listening to this podcast and you'll automatically hear. We've got a, a bunch of exciting episodes coming out. Oh, yeah. We've got people talking about microfinance. We've got PhD students talking about their emergent research We've got editors of major journals coming in talking about the field of entrepreneurship and, and what use is it to anyone anyway. Uh, so it's going to be an exciting season. We look forward to it and hope you enjoyed our show. Today. And the other thing is,
1: if anybody has any negative comments, please send them to our producer and friend, Joel. He can yes, handle yes. all of that for us, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, send those yes, straight to
0: him. Some bad <laughs> news. <Yeah. laughs> all right. Fantastic. Thank you very much yes. for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll see you. Well, I guess we won't see you. Yep. We'll uh, talk to you next time. Thanks, Thanks Jeff. Thank you, Brad. That was awesome. Thanks again, man.